I think the history of women's cricket is only now starting to be told. Girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. By virtue of being a woman, that does also mean that you are excluded from some things. Good heavens, fancy the girl sending a woman to England to cover a cricket match. The fielding is keen. Every girl is on her toes. I just loved every minute of it. Just to play was wonderful. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. Welcome to the second episode of The Maiden Summer, the hidden story of a famous sporting contest and the growth of Australian women's cricket. I'm Nick Richardson, and this time we encounter some big changes in how women play the game. We see their emerging autonomy, the arrival of some personal agency, and for the first time, a hint of discord that will take years to resolve. We hear from some of the cricketers who will become part of Test Cricket history, and listen to what it meant to them to play cricket and transport themselves from difficult circumstances onto a national stage. We reveal the important role played by an emerging group of women's sports supporters, pioneers in their own right, and how they become the game's new allies. And once again, we feel the weight of circumstance as world events conspire to extinguish the momentum driving the growth of women's cricket. We begin this time in 1907. It's the year after the first interstate contests between Victoria and Tasmania in Melbourne. It's time for Victoria to travel south to return the favour by playing Tasmanian teams on the state's northwest coast. This time there is a recognition, especially within Tasmania, that the women's cricket tour can have benefits that go beyond the games. Here's Jackie Triffitt, former Tasmanian cricketer and author of On the Front Foot, the rise of Tasmanian women's cricket. The Victorians came and visited Tasmania, the northwest coast, and toured there. And again, there's a lot of information around how those matches were and the success of that tour. And what was interesting, I think, Nick, with that was that those particular days, it wasn't just about the women playing cricket, but the Tasmanian government also saw it as a way of creating tourism for Tasmania as well. So some of the people that were involved on the northwest coast with the women's cricket were also members of the tourism bureaus as well. And so there was this kind of interchange between the tourist bureaus in Victoria and those in Tasmania. So it became very much around tourism as much as it was about um, playing cricket. The Tasmanians organising the Victorian tour also understand the power of nourishing the network of fraternal bonds. They invite the secretary of the Victorian Ladies Cricket Association to observe the tour and the Tasmanians also believe that getting coverage in the press is integral to spreading the word about women's cricket, so they invite a sports writer from the Argus to join the tour. The whole notion of a woman's sporting team going on tour is a breakthrough in itself. It means women are able to travel as a group for the purposes of organised sport and recreation. In this instance, accompanied by a male manager and a female chaperone. But this is a new kind of autonomy, and it's not only a great way to develop a network of friends through a shared activity, it actually reinforces the appeal of the game they're playing. But the results are just as one-sided as they were a year earlier and Victoria easily wins all three matches against Tasmania. If you read the papers, it looks like women's cricket is thriving. In December 1907, the Sydney Morning Herald remarks how popular cricket is, especially for Victorian women and girls. It's a point well made. Not only is there the Victorian Ladies Cricket Association, but also a Church of England Association. 
crowd numbers and player participation are both up on the previous year. Three years later, New South Wales sends a team to play Victoria and Melbourne in three matches, plus some contests against club sides. The series is tied going into the third match at the East Melbourne ground, and Victoria emerges triumphant. No wonder then that R.W.E. Wilmot, a seasoned sports journalist at Melbourne's The Argus newspaper, who wrote under the nom de plume Old Boy, had this to say in 1910. The emancipation of woman has grown apace in sport and the lady athletes of the various states now play their interstate matches. Cricket has been specially chosen by ladies as a game in which to display their athletic ability. And in this sport, they've found opportunity to challenge the criticism. You throw like a girl has been a term of contempt to many a schoolboy, but no longer can it be used in derision, for this development of cricket amongst ladies has altered all this. Old boys jumping the gun, what appears to be the blush of sustainability, is nothing of the sort. And here we come to part two of this great cricket mystery, the second hiatus in the development of women's cricket. Except, unlike the difficult decade that straddled the start of the 20th century, this hiatus is in some ways more explicable and in other ways more puzzling. You can start to see the trend happening in Victoria where numbers start to drop off from a peak of 21 teams in 1905 to only seven in 1913. The Church of England Association is short-lived, it's gone before 1914. So Tasmania fails to capitalise on its early promise and doesn't have sufficient organisation or structure to provide regular competition. In New South Wales, the game just appears to be ticking over. Coverage in the papers drops off. It's hard to find evidence of any organised cricket matches anywhere in the state. There are instead reports of a new game that is growing among women basketball, or what we now know as netball. By 1912, it has 10 Sydney clubs. Women's cricket is a game that has yet to take root. On the surface, it appears set to become a regular part of the sporting calendar, but it's not able to make itself sustainable. The innovation hasn't become the routine. Perhaps part of the reason in the period after 1910 is a general malaise about all of cricket. Remember how important the thrilling Ashes series of 1894-95 had been in firing enthusiasm for all kinds of cricket. This time, the Australian men's team is in the midst of a period of deep turmoil, riven by personal disputes and clashes that were reflected in the 4-1 Ashes loss in Australia in 1911-12, followed by an average tour of England for the triangular test series with England and South Africa in 1912. And then came World War I. World War I's effect is like sweeping all the tokens off the board. Nothing remains the same. Women become part of the volunteer movement, helping to support the war effort with fundraising, helping the Red Cross and the Australian Comfort Funds. Organised women's sport drops off the radar. There are very few games among women cricketers during the war other than the occasional patriotic match. In fact, there's more women's football played whether it's in Western Australia or regional Victoria. The war, though, has changed the landscape for women, especially their physical skills and capacities. It happens here and it happens in Britain, as cricket historian Raf Nicholson explains. I think something important happens um, as a result of the First World War, 
when obviously um, women are doing things that they've never done before because men are away at the front fighting. Um, so women are kind of going and, and working in factories or um, you know participating in quite vigorous war work. Um, and there's definitely an argument then that it becomes more normalised to have women participating in, in physical activity and in, in sports. And the interwar period in England is definitely a, a huge growth period for women's sports. Um, so there are associations set up for, for example, um, netball and um, rowing and athletics. And so these all of these sports are hugely growing. But it does also take the drive of a small number of women to actually go about setting up these associations. What we see in the years after the war is a burst of energy that makes it feel like the hiatus never happened, even as Australia struggles through the Great Depression. It's worthwhile us looking at how Australia and England navigate their way out of the war years because, from the Australian point of view, England remains the benchmark, as well as our future rival. The game's post-war resurgence starts with the establishment of associations that provide the framework for cricket to grow, and in England, that grows out of the popularity of women playing hockey, a sport that Englishmen consider far more suitable for women than cricket. Here's Raf again. So it's a group of women's hockey players who eventually go on and form the, the Women's Cricket Association in 1926. People like Frances Heron Maxwell, Vera Cox, who played for England, Marjorie Pollard, who'd also been an England hockey player. Um, they actually kind of go on this little cricketing holiday and um, they know each other through hockey and they think, oh, let's set up a similar association to the one that's governing women's hockey for women's cricket. And they're run on very similar lines and the, the organisation is done very, very similarly. So, yeah, the relationship is very lasting. For the most part, English female cricketers are solidly middle class. There's an exception, though, the energetic force behind the Women's Cricket Association, the former England hockey player, Marjorie Pollard. And Marjorie Pollard is one of those, and she's certainly a very driven woman. She's actually got a really interesting background um, because women's cricket is largely um, very middle class at, at this time. Um, as is women's hockey. Um, but Marjorie Pollard is the daughter of a, a railway engine driver. So she's actually kind of got a claim to legitimately being um, probably the first working class woman to represent England at hockey. Um, she kind of almost sort of propels herself up into the, the middle class by virtue of um, she wins a scholarship to stay on at, at school and beyond the age of 14. And then she saves up money in order to enable herself to go to, to physical training college and become a PE teacher. So so, um, she's this kind of amazing sort of pioneering woman who then goes on and um, becomes a, a sports journalist, probably one of the first women sports journalists, and is enormously influential in getting women's cricket, getting that kind of respectability and the sense of it being real, really covered in the newspapers. The woman who would become England's first test captain comes from a background that is both far more radical and far more privileged than Marjorie Pollard. It's Betty Archdale, the daughter of a suffragette, who as a little girl visits her mother in Holloway Jail, where she's imprisoned for her political activism. Here's Betty recounting her mother's philosophy and how that impacted on her childhood. My mother was one of the first suffragettes, the women who were prepared to go to prison in order to get the vote. And of course, to get to prison, they had to break the law, which they did on the whole by um, throwing stones through windows and that type of activity. 
this must have worried Muller because her type of woman with her social background didn't do these kind of things. But this was the same with most of the suffragettes. Consequently, this is one of the big influences in my childhood was the fact that Muller felt so strongly that women didn't have the vote. She was prepared to go to prison and did go to prison. And the Pankhurst family, who of course are famous in the history of the suffragettes, uh, were close friends of our family. Mrs. Pankhurst uh, was a great friend of mother's, and I used to see quite a lot of her. Adela Pankhurst, one of Mrs. Pankhurst's daughters, was our governess for a time. And we were all very conscious of the Pankhursts as a family, and again, a very happy family. Betty's mother also influences her choice of schools, which in turn helped shape Betty's cricketing destiny. My mother had been to a school up at St Andrews in Scotland, which was, in its own way, was just as much a pioneer school as Bedell's, because it was the one of the first schools where girls got much the same education as boys, and where girls were encouraged to play sport. Uh, and I knew Mother had loved this school, St Leonard's and St Andrews, and she talked a lot about it. So I said, look, you know, how about a change? Because I'd been six years at Beedows. I said, couldn't I go up to St Andrews? And I think Mother was rather pleased. I think although she'd sent me to the co-ed boarding school because this fitted in with her views on, on women, um, she was rather thrilled when I th- said I'd like to go to her old school. Betty didn't have an Australian equivalent of the time, but... Her privileged upbringing in education is not remarkably dissimilar to the woman who would become Betty's rival, the Australian captain, Margaret Peden. Margaret is the daughter of Sir John Beverley Peden, Professor of Law at the University of Sydney and President of the New South Wales Parliament's Legislative Council. Margaret and her sister Barbara are dedicated cricketers, missionaries in fact for the women's game, and both are university graduates, Margaret in arts, Barbara in architecture. They both attend Abbots Lee Girls School in Sydney, one of the few schools that promotes girls' cricket, and Margaret also captains the school team. Let's compare that background with one of the women who would line up alongside the Peden sisters in the first women's test match, Nell McClarty. I don't know my mother because she died when I was a baby. Mm. Only 18 months old, I had a sister. Mm. And um, my father... He was the youngest of the family. And his sister, which was my auntie, she was the eldest. You know, they had big families in those days. And he, she practically read my father. Well, when my mother died, mm-hmm. they just packed us up and sent us, I was talking to Australian mm-hmm. sent us over here to my auntie. And she was over 60, which was wonderful. Yeah. Take on a couple of youngsters, but the sister was three and I was 18 months. Nell's aunt was strict. And when Nell starts playing cricket, her aunt doesn't much care for it. She had grown up daughters and sons and they were married. The youngest of the family was Bill and he was the only one that stood up for me. I didn't like me playing at all. I wasn't a lady. Mm. (laughs) Ladies didn't play cricket. (laughs) Nell persists though and her talent finds its way. One of the sides was short and it happened to be a team called Clarendon and they decided, well, I'd be better than nothing. So they gave me a game and they asked me if I could bowl and I said, well, I'd only bowl with a tennis ball and I'd never used a hard ball, so I got a bowl and it turned out all right. I got seven for two. (laughs) One of Nell's great friends across cricket is Peggy Antonio, who becomes Australia's league-spinning ace and makes her test debut at just 17. Peggy's father is a Chilean dockside worker who dies when Peggy is only 15 months old. 
She has an uncle and plenty of boys to play cricket with when she gets older, but it's not easy in the tough streets of Port Melbourne. Both Nell and Peggy leave school at 14. Nell becomes a machinist at menswear store Henry Bucks. Peggy makes boxes at Raymond's shoe factory in Collingwood. At least Raymond's has a women's cricket team and Peggy is happy to join. These are the women who will become part of our first test team, a diverse, passionate group of cricketers whose difference from their English opponents will be a constant source of interest to both teams and often a source of great fraternal humour. There's Amy Hudson, a teenager in Sydney's inner west who is obsessed with cricket. She plays it in the street with the boys but she pesters her mum about finding a team she can join. Amy's only 14, she's had to leave school to help the family through the depression. Her mum approaches the Annandale Picture House with a proposition. Will they run a slide asking for players to join a new team in their regular cinema advertising? The cinema owners agree and within a week there are enough players for a team. Within a month, there's enough girls for two teams. And it's not long before Amy's captain. And Molly Flaherty, a lean and rangy fast bowler, the youngest of 11 kids in a big Catholic family from Dulwich Hill in Sydney. They call her the demon. She's quick. Too quick for many. And she and Nell McClarty will form a special bond. Court McClarty bowled Flaherty in the years to come. If the Roaring Twenties were making a big noise across the world, they were starting to shake a few things up down under too, especially when it came to women's cricket. Might have been a bit of a dull roar at first, but every state is becoming more organised. It starts with two clubs in Melbourne in 1921, then a new estate association just two years after that. New South Wales follows with its own association in 1927, Queensland gets there in 1929, and then South Australia and Western Australia a year later. So, by 1930, women in all of the mainland states have a structured competition to ensure regular games and a rise in standards. It seems that the enthusiasm for women's sport is contagious. In 1921, 100 women gather in a Brisbane gymnasium in what's credited with the start of organised women's soccer in Australia. The first official match happens soon after. Change is happening in other places too. In Melbourne... A young swimmer called Patricia Jarrett is starting to make a name for herself. She's also a damn good athlete, winning track and field titles at the Victorian Amateur Athletic Championships. Pat Jarrett has other goals. She doesn't just want to play sport or be an athlete. She wants to write about it. She starts as a teenager, writing freelance sports stories for the weekly publication, The Sporting Globe. But that's just a taste of her ambition. It's not long before she's being tempted to work for the Sporting Globe's big relative, the Keith Murdoch-owned Melbourne Herald. Why don't you think about coming onto the Herald? Oh, I said they don't have very many women on the Herald. I think they had about one woman on the reporting staff of the Herald in those days. They said, no, it was a sports writer. I said, well, who should I write to? The name Keith Murdoch didn't mean a thing to me, but it was Mr Keith Murdoch that I, uh, that I wrote to and the sort of letter I wrote which is what you do when you, you know, that young, 18 or so years of age. I practically, in effect, said how the Melbourne Herald was coming out without me at night, I just couldn't possibly imagine. Well, to my delight and surprise, I was told to come and see his private secretary, who was a man. Remember this very well. And from that Tony Clark, his private secretary, I was ushered into 
to a man who would be remembered, I'm certain, uh, Sidney Deemer, who was one of the great editors of Australian newspapers, one of the great editors of the Melbourne Herald. And Sidney Deemer sat me down in front of him and he said, and what's the first thing you read in the Herald at night, Miss Jarrett? And in all innocence and in truth, I said, Mickey Mouse. He said, so do I. Now he said, <laughs> when would you like to start? And I said, I think this was a Friday. I think I said the first day that came into my head, which was a Wednesday. And he said, and how much do you think you'd want to start working here on a permanent basis as the sports writer of the Melbourne Herald? Again, I just plucked a figure out of the air. Five pounds. That was a fortune. I floated down Flinders Street to catch the train to St Kilda, to catch the tram to Elwood. So in one afternoon, Pat Jarrett doubles the representation of female journalists in the newsroom at the Melbourne Herald. Bear in mind, the first Australian woman journalist was Alice Henry, who started at the old Australasian in 1884. There weren't many between Alice and Pat, and Pat is a rarity. She's covering women's sport. It's not long before she's joined by several others, almost all of them sportswomen, cricketers, hockey players, swimmers, at newspapers and now magazines across the country. It's the 1930s. What's going on? For a start, Pat Jarrett is not only covering sport, she still wants to keep playing it, and she develops a reputation as an athlete in her own right. Keith Murdoch introduces Pat to the rest of the editorial staff as our outstanding woman athlete. This is how Pat combines the two activities on a Saturday, competing and writing. Uh, Gathering of sports was pretty strenuous because I was competing as well as reporting. And Saturday afternoons were the great days for for women's sport and we were out on this beautiful oval out off uh, the, uh, the Sydney Road and I would have a boy who would run with results to a private house and telephone them through to the Herald while I might be competing in a hurdles race or a shot put race or a javelin throw. I was still awfully good with my right arm. I could still throw the ball further than anybody. And this, I think, is why I took discus throwing and javelin throwing and shot putting. And uh, as a matter of fact, the day that I went to work for the Herald for the first time, if anyone knows Flinders Street, Melbourne, they know in front of the Herald at 44 Flinders Street they have large frames where they put pictures because they've always been very proud of their pictures. And there suddenly fronting me the morning I walked in there to work was this enormous blow-up picture of me hurling the discus the previous Saturday at a sports carnival out at the Royal Park. Here's the roll call of some of those female sports journalists who came to establish themselves in the 1930s. There are sisters Carly and Pat Hanson, hockey players who write about hockey and cricket in Brisbane and Sydney. There's Ruth Preddy, who plays cricket for New South Wales and writes about it for the new publication, the Australian Women's Weekly. She also becomes a long-standing administrator in New South Wales. Lois Crowell writes about cricket and other sports in the Adelaide newspapers. Gwen Varley, keen sportswoman and administrator, broadcasts about women's sport on radio. They are soon joined by Kath Commons, who plays an excellent game of tennis and captains the New South Wales women's cricket team. She joins the Sydney Morning Herald. Nikki Hanningham is a consulting historian with extensive experience researching and writing about the historical lives of Australian women. She reckons that the First World War has changed the landscape for some women in Australia. 
Jobs that hadn't been there before the war had opened up to them, partly because of the loss of men from the workforce, but also through greater educational options. The effect is that it not only shifts some thinking about women in journalism, but also about the increasing importance of newspapers catering for a growing female readership. That generation were obviously fighting to get into, you know, say newspapers or what have you. But I think there were possibly a more enlightened, perhaps a more enlightened male editor at the time who actually, even if it's only for the profit margin, recognised that he had an audience out there that actually would respond to stories about women doing women's sport or taking control of their own organisations. It was probably still separate from the men's stuff, which is the main game or what have you. And I, and I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, you know, they're, they're taking on a, an important advocacy role, but they have nevertheless recognised a market which is there for an educated women readership in all areas. The other consequence of the war for women is that it provides some of them with the opportunity to travel overseas and they see and experience a different world. After the First World War, you know, in very simplistic terms, we kind of cocooned as a nation. We, you know, we actually became very isolationist. In the 20s and 30s, there's much more development, much more travel internationally. And there's a lot of women of that sort of class who travel and see, particularly in the United States, how much better off and how many more opportunities there are for women to actually spread their wings in the professions. Um, And so a lot of them do that and then they come back to Australia and there are a number of them, you know, who, who comment on how, crikey, we're backwards here. This engagement with a wider world helps build the appeal of journalism as a career option for some women, particularly for those who play sport, because they look around and see what's missing from their newspapers. They want to read about what they do. I think one of the stories about Kath Commons is that, you know, she was, she managed to get a meeting with the editor who asked her, does she see a gap that she could fill? And she said, yes, covering women's sport. These are milestones in women's sporting journalism. And the emergence of these reporters coincides in many ways with what is looking like a widespread acceptance of women's cricket. It's no longer a novelty item in the paper. It's becoming a regular part of the sports pages. Despite all the challenges and the sexism and, you know, whatever that they encountered, for many women, the 20s and 30s were actually a, a period of opportunity. And so that the, the women's cricket team and, this, and, and sports writing and so on are part of that sort of, I guess, that sort of context. For a young up-and-comer Nell McClarty, she can't help but be impressed by how that opportunity translates into newspaper coverage. Uh, media, they were quite good. They would put it in the paper more than what they do now. And if, if you did something that was reasonably good, you'd have a paragraph and a photo, mm. and that probably helped people to turn up. Similar trend is emerging in England. Part of that is Marjorie Pollard's dogged pursuit of newspaper editors inviting them to matches, but also her own journalism that culminates in starting a magazine about women's cricket. Raph Nicholson is in no doubt about Marjorie's impact. I think that that is one of the real areas in which Marjorie Pollard is able to make a difference um, because 
when she sees um, some of these articles in in newspapers that are being published, so for example, um, photographs being published of women batting in bathing costumes and things like that, and they clearly aren't seriously trying to play cricket, it's just a kind of publicity stunt, she actually often contacts the editors of those newspapers and says, look, this isn't what women's cricket is really about, why don't you come to a proper match and actually run a proper match report? And often they do, and so she establishes these relationships and that's really important. I think that in the interwar period, women's sport is helped by the fact that um, newsprint is really growing um, and newspaper sales are going up. And, you know, there are kind of new publications being set up and sport is seen as a good way to attract people to buy your newspaper, basically. Um, And that, to some extent, um, applies to women's sport as much as it does men's sport. For those who have researched coverage of women's cricket in newspapers and in the broader media, then and now, it's a sobering comparison, as Raf explains. In some ways, um, women's cricket in the 1930s in the English newspapers is covered, you know, in a in a better way, or certainly there's more coverage than in some um, more recent periods in time. I think we're getting to a point now where there is more coverage in the newspapers, but certainly up until very recently, there probably was more coverage in the 1930s. We can't underestimate the importance of sports reporters in these circumstances, particularly female reporters. Nikki Hanningham is clear about their legacy. If we didn't have those women writing those reports, we might not know about those people in the 20s and 30s who were doing these amazing things. And one of the practical consequences of this growth in sports coverage could even be seen at club matches. Nell McClarty is struck by the size of the crowds and the passion of the fans who turn out to see her play. We used to get about 3,000 people watching us at Clifton Hill, didn't we, Peg, when we oh, played a good yes. game? Yes, and the Just in the local competition. Yeah. yeah. They'd come, the men come and uh, they'd only have a few seats around the ground and they'd come early, the old people, to get a seat and they'd bury. What's clear is that women come to cricket from a range of backgrounds and influences. Most have played some sport at school, usually rounders, sometimes hockey, occasionally basketball and, depending on the school, perhaps cricket. Many come from sporting families. Sisters play together, like the Pedans in Sydney and the four Chevel sisters. Clubs grow stronger over time, players become more experienced, and some of them with a professional background have much to contribute when it comes to club administration. By the time we get to 1930, Australian women's cricket is poised to take an important step. Interstate competitions are revived and Victoria sends a first and second 11 to New South Wales to play one match against the home teams. The result? One win each. This is just a foretaste of what's to come. The following year, an interstate competition takes place that features New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria in Sydney. It will become the forerunner of an annual interstate carnival. Two of the three games in this series are played at the SCG, the other at Cranbrook in Rose Bay. Not only has women's cricket been revived, it's also taking its place on the main stage. How else would you explain its presence at the SCG? At the same time, the Australian Women's Cricket Association comes into being. The word ladies is long gone. It's a game for all women from all backgrounds. And the AWCC's goals are clear from its constitution. To promote the development of women's cricket in Australia. To make rules for the good government of women's cricket and to arrange control and regular visits of teams to and from Australia representative matches in Australia in which cricketers of more than one state are engaged. 
and annual cricket matches between state women's cricket associations. The addition of South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania is a healthy aspiration, but it can't be realised until some of the travelling costs to the eastern states are mitigated and that there is sufficient confidence locally that the game will grow. But that won't take long. In Sydney, Margaret Peden hits the road, spreading the word to Canberra, Goulburn and the New South Wales South Coast with some of her players from a Sydney club side. They play matches during the day, stay in the tents that they carry with them during the night. Richard Cashman and Amanda Weaver, authors of The First History of Australian Women's Cricket, estimate there are 81 clubs in New South Wales involved in women's cricket in 1930. Queensland is showing its own strength and Victoria's club scene is bolstered by several factory teams, among others. Overall, Cashman and Weaver estimate that there are 3,450 women playing cricket across the country. The situation in England is more complicated. Marjorie Pollard's English equivalent of the Australian organisation has the MCC to deal with, and that's an organisation that sits atop the game, takes its responsibility very seriously in controlling cricket's rules, and therefore not only how the game's played, but how it looks. Inevitably, the Women's Cricket Association in England has more modest ambitions than its Australian counterpart. It's on a diplomatic mission, as Raf Nicholson points out. I think partly what they're trying to do is to kind of overcome some of this opposition that exists to women's cricket. I think that they're trying to set themselves out as a um, a group of women who aren't trying to create a revolution. They just want to, you know, have some have some nice cricket matches. They just want to be able to play, and that's more appealing to the MCC, who are very conservative. And actually, that helps them to get some of that support that they really need. Betty Archdale has been fashioning her own exploits, attending university in Canada and pursuing a legal career. But sport is always an important part of her life. When I was at school, uh, both at Beedales and St Leonard's, uh, I'd played a great deal of sport. I was one of those people with a fairly natural ball sense. And one of the games which uh, I particularly enjoyed was cricket. We played cricket at Beedales, of course, we played it at St Leonard's. And when I got back from Canada, I found that while I'd been away, the Women's Cricket Association had been formed. And I happened to live within a mile of the number one ground of the Women's Cricket Association where the founder lived, Mrs. Heron Maxwell. And we had a lovely little cricket club there. And so I played cricket in the summer and hockey in the winter with an enormous amount of enthusiasm, perhaps not a great deal of skill. So cricket and hockey too, to a certain extent, became my biggest relaxation. It was always a relaxation. Uh, I was studying law and working in odd jobs at the time, but I loved my Saturday afternoon uh, cricket matches or hockey matches. I loved travelling, I loved meeting the people. The games in those days in England were completely non-competitive. There was no competition at all. It didn't really matter who we wanted to win, but it didn't matter. There were no points, no cups. Uh, They were were real social games. And the afternoon tea, either in the middle in cricket or at the end in in hockey, uh, was a wonderful time of relaxation and friendship. Betty always talks about how different the Australian approach to cricket is to her own experience. And perhaps it's that kind of insight that explains why she will become the leader of an English team heading into the stiff headwinds of cricket's greatest controversy. But there is one smaller dispute Australian women have to navigate themselves, and it's a long and drawn-out affair. 
You remember how much attention was paid to what our early cricket pioneers used to wear. It was about the long skirts and the coloured jackets, none of it practical, all of it driven by the conventions of the day. By the 1920s, the skirts become shorter and legs are covered with white stockings. But as the game grows, so did debate among the players about what's the most practical outfit. In 1930, Sydney club Sansui lobbies its new state organisation to introduce long trousers for women cricketers. Goes to the vote and it's lost. A year later, the tables are turned and by three votes only, the New South Wales Women's Cricket Association agrees to let women wear long white or cream trousers, but they have to be made to an approved pattern. The New South Wales captain, Hazel Pritchard, explains why she wants to wear what's known as longans. We wanted long trousers first because we didn't like the white cotton stockings the New South Wales WCA costume rule made us wear. Of course, we realised the stupidity of playing in silk stockings and the abuses that would arise if teams were allowed to play without stockings. But those white cotton affairs were awful. Then again, skirts always got in the way at a critical moment. With the trousers, we've got absolute freedom of action, both for batting and bowling, and really, I do think they're neater than the frocks. It isn't exactly pretty to see a plump girl field a low ball on a windy day with a full skirt on. Association Secretary Margaret Peden opposes the idea on more practical grounds. It is a matter of the dressing accommodation. Most women's sporting associations, not being affluent, must be content with unenclosed grounds with little or no dressing accommodation. How and where are the girls going to change? In truth, it isn't an unprecedented innovation. There are women's teams all around the country wearing trousers, from Toowoomba in Queensland to Glebe in inner Sydney. Women's uniforms in other sports, whether it's swimming or hockey, have been steadily relaxing, enabling women to feel more comfortable. Even the Prince of Wales has an opinion, one that goes somewhat further than long trousers for women's cricketers. I see no reason on earth why any woman should not wear shorts for tennis, he's quoted as saying in 1934. They are very comfortable and quite the most practical costume for the game, and I don't think they lose anything in looks. And despite what appears to be the New South Wales women's support for long trousers, it does take many years before all of women's cricket adopts the longans. We've reached a point where women cricketers are becoming more ambitious for their sport. There's now a grander goal to test themselves on the world stage against another nation, and that nation that all Australian cricket looks to, England. In July 1932, news leaks out. There may be a chance of an English women's team touring Australia. There's been discussions between one of Marjorie Pollard's colleagues who's been holidaying in Australia. She's had a chat with Margaret Peden, and not long after that, the Australian Women's Cricket Council sends an invite to its English counterpart proposing a visit in the summer of 1934-1935. It's a bold idea. Little do Marjorie Pollard and her colleagues know that the Australian Women's Cricket Council only has 14 shillings and eightpence in its bank account. But Margaret Peden and her Australian Women's Cricket Council know how important it is to capture the moment and build on the game's popularity. 
Back in England, it's an enticing idea. Betty Archdale is instantly interested. We heard rumours that the Australian Women's Cricket Association, which had started just about the same time as the English, was thinking of inviting a team of women to play in Australia. This really seemed too good to be true. It wasn't. Not quite. Next time on The Maiden Summer, the England women's team arrives in Australia when cricket relations between the two nations are at an all-time low. But the crowds turn out in their thousands and Australian cricket fans find some new stars to cheer. It's a vibrant, eye-catching summer of cricket and it heralds the start of what promises to be a golden time for Australian women's cricket. This podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. Special thanks to Jackie Triffitt, Raf Nicholson and Nikki Henningham. For details on their books and other credits, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au. Special thanks to the voices of Sue Westwood, Mitch Cleary, Rosalie Flynn and Chris Plumridge. And remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts.